Well, our second Bible reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And all those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, ten years ago, too close to the mic. Ten years ago, I was teaching Sunday school to five-year-olds at my church in Los Angeles. And over the past several weeks, we had been reading through Bible stories together. So on this particular Sunday, I wanted to do something special. I brought with me to church an old Bible that at one point had belonged to my mom and now belonged to me. And I wanted to show this Bible to these five-year-olds and show them that the same Bible stories that we read in class are the same Bible stories that I've read, that my mother has read, that many have read over time, and we reread the same Bible stories to bring us comfort and understanding. So it doesn't matter if you're five years old or 50 years old or 100 years old, we all share in this same truth. So I show them the Bible, and we pass it around the classroom, and we're looking at it, we're opening it up and flipping through the pages, and, well, what is this? Well, that's a note. Why does someone write a note? Because you want to remember something. That's right. And this is a highlight. Why would I highlight something? So that we memorize it. And we memorize things in this classroom, too. What are some things that we memorize? It's going so well. The kids were loving it, and I'm already applauding myself, calling myself the best Sunday school teacher ever, and a hand is raised in the classroom by Drew. I said, yes, Drew? He said, Mr. Sean, I have a question. Okay. How can we know for certain that every word in the Bible is completely true when it was written thousands of years ago by different people and in different languages? Uh, Okay, Uh, you're five years old, and um, 
Suddenly, this is all going in a very different direction than what I expected. I'm no longer Mr. Rogers. I'm suddenly having visions of a mass exodus of five-year-olds storming out, running into the sanctuary, grabbing their parents. Let's get out of here. It's all a lie. Um, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, the questions seemed to go over the rest of the five-year-olds' heads. But it was just me and Drew in that moment locking eyes. I thought, what do you tell someone. What do you tell a five-year-old? So I thought, I'm going to tell him the same thing that I tell myself. I said, I'm really glad you asked that question, Drew. We can ask God all of our questions. I wonder that sometimes, too. It is strange, isn't it, that God will be used so many different people over thousands of years? But I think the many different people tell me that many different people agree with one another. And the many different languages tell me that it's cross-cultural. People from different countries who speak different languages are in agreement with one another. But Drew, most of all, I feel confident in the Bible because God has proven himself trustworthy to me. And so I can trust his word. And Drew looked at me, nodded his head, and he said, I see your point. It's just so hard to believe sometimes. That's what he said. Out of the mouths of babes. And over the past 10 years, I have thought about Drew's confession of faith a lot. That's what that was. It was confession of faith. It's just so hard to believe sometimes. It is. You know, we're told to enter the kingdom of heaven like a child. We can bring our doubts to God like a child as well. See, doubt is not the opposite of faith, right? Just as you cannot be brave unless fear is present, you cannot have faith unless there's a room for doubt. But you overcome fear with bravery, and you overcome doubt with your faith. I think one of the most profound prayers in the Bible is, I believe, help my unbelief. Today, using the passage before us, why don't we explore together belief and doubt. So Peter and Jesus are the two central characters in this passage and as we look at this text together, let's think about Peter and how Peter might relate to us today. We're going to take a look at the power of belief, the difficulty with belief, and how Jesus restores our belief. So the power, the difficulty, and the restoration. First, the power of belief. Well, we all have belief. We are all believers. Marcelo Gleiser, the theoretical physicist at Dartmouth College, has defined the human species like this. Humans are high-functioning primates from planet Earth who have achieved consciousness and with it the ability to believe. It's not a very glamorous definition of humans, but it is interesting that Gleiser, who is a secular person, defines humans as believing animals. Humans are believing animals animals. To believe is to be human. What you believe changes your life. 
give you an example of this. Carol Dweck is a renowned psychologist and professor at Stanford University. She's best known for her work on mindset and how it's a predictive measure for success or the lack thereof. Her work's been huge in the education space and in many businesses. But you might be familiar with what she has identified as the two main mindsets, which is a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. There's some nods here. It seems like some people are familiar with this. If you're not familiar, um, in summary, individuals who believe their talents can be developed through hard work, good strategies, input from others, they have a growth mindset. They tend to achieve more than those with more of a fixed mindset, which are people who believe their talents are innate gifts. Uh, Carol Dweck's TED Talk, The Power of Believing You Can Improve, has over 12 million views. I'd say it resonates so deeply because we want to believe that we can improve. Psychologists will tell you that it's your belief that drives your action. And if you don't believe you can improve, you never will. You'll never take the first step of necessary action to make it happen. What you believe dictates your behavior. Now, of course, there's limits. You can't have you can't believe your way to impossible goals. I still wake up most mornings thinking I'm just a phone call away from being a shortstop for the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, it's not gonna happen. Uh, there's not a training regimen I could follow that would make it happen no matter how hard I believe. A belief is only as reliable as its source. So I'll give you another example. The money in our pockets or in the cloud somewhere is backed by the Federal Reserve to the full faith and credit of the US government. And you, and me, and the global economy all find that to be reliable. We're undoubtedly satisfied with that. Now, the Christian's faith is backed by Jesus Christ. And in order for that to be reliable, Jesus must be real. He must be the Son of God, and he must be good. Or else, what I told Drew in that Sunday school classroom is not only not comforting, but it is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. So, is Jesus reliable? Can we trust him? All right, well, let's see. What was Peter's experience with Jesus at this point in our passage? We know when Jesus' ministry began, he set the world on fire because no one had ever heard teaching like this before. People were amazed because he taught with authority. Of course, Scripture tells us Jesus taught with authority to speak the word because he was the word. He was the word made flesh. So no one could deliver that message with the full authority of the word himself. Peter would have observed Jesus' teachings at great length. And we know he was the first disciple called, but we also know that before he was a disciple, he had already been following Jesus for a year. Once he was called, he spent nearly every waking moment with him. So just think about that. Peter, having a front row seat to the Sermon on the Mount, being able to ask questions to Jesus afterwards, just as the disciples would after parables. What did he mean by that? Who am I in that parable? Peter had reason to believe in the reliability because of Jesus' teaching and because of the relationship 
that was being forged. He saw the consistent faithfulness of Jesus. Peter also had an up-close view of all of Jesus' miracles, his signs and his wonders. It was Jesus' miracles that validated his exclusive messianic identity. Peter's own mother-in-law was healed by Jesus in his own house. And Peter and the disciples were so amazed by it that they ran out of the house gathering every sick person they could find to bring to Jesus that he might heal him. What we see is that throughout this gospel of Matthew is that belief is intertwined with the miracles. Matthew 9 alone, three examples. Matthew 9 two, Jesus is brought a paralytic. And when he sees the faith of those who brought him, he healed him and said his sins were forgiven. Matthew 9.22, a woman who had suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years touched his garment, and Jesus responded, Take heart, daughter, for your faith has made you well. Matthew 9.28, two blind men approach Jesus, seeking their sight to be restored, and Jesus simply asks them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They reply, yes. He touches them, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. In all these cases, they believe because Jesus has proven himself to be reliable. Their belief affects the action. Conversely, the lack of belief has a negative impact. When Jesus is rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, Matthew 13, 58 says, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So back to the Sea of Galilee. You know, what is happening here? Um, I was in Sunday school myself the first time I heard this story. And when I heard it presented, I remember thinking it was odd that we were discussing Peter's lack of faith. Lack of faith? Peter walked on water. I mean, isn't that impressive? He's doing something that no one else outside of Christ has ever done. So what is happening here that provokes Jesus' response? Why did you doubt? See, Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned that Peter walked on water because that's not what Jesus is after. Now, Jesus doesn't say to Peter afterwards, Wow, look at you. Look what you did, bud. You took a couple steps on water. All right, tomorrow, let's go back out in the lake. We'll do it again. It'll get better. Lake of Galilee today, oceans tomorrow. Right? Jesus isn't showing Peter how to walk on water. He's showing Peter that he is the Lord. Jesus didn't come to earth to train disciples to walk on water. It's not the ministry of water walking. He trains disciples to trust in him so that you might follow him. Don't value the miracle over the miracle maker. Jesus telling Peter, Oh, you of little faith, doesn't suggest that Peter has no faith. It's that he has a deficiency of faith. He believes, but he needs to believe more. See, at this point, Peter is very impressed with Jesus. Peter believed that Jesus was a teacher unlike any other. He believed that he could heal the sick and perform incredible miracles. He's just still did not yet believe that Jesus was the Messiah, able to do all things. There's no way he could be that good. 
Does your faith suggest that you are impressed with Jesus, or does it suggest that you believe him to be the Son of God? And what's the difference? What does it matter? What would it look like if you did? Which brings us to the difficulty with belief. Now, the difficulty of belief is probably not a section that requires a lot of explanation. Just like Drew, we all know it's hard to believe sometimes. Uh, earlier this week, Annie and I went to the Immersive Van Gogh exhibit at Pier 36. Uh, it was a great time. If you haven't been yet, uh, unlike traditional exhibits at museums where you go in and you look at artwork on the walls, in this exhibit you literally walk into a painting of Van Gogh and you are immersed in it throughout. Uh, it's really, really fun. But at the end of the exhibit, you step out of this giant room and you see one quote on the wall. It's by Van Gogh. And it says, there is peace even in the storm. So seeing that on Wednesday was uh, pretty cool because I had been uh, spending some time with this message. And if you didn't know, uh, before Van Gogh was a painter, he was a preacher. And it was his discouragement in the ministry that led him to being a full-time artist, uh, which is odd. I guess it uh, says something about the difficulty of ministry that you would find being a starving artist uh, somewhat of a reprieve. Um, but this quote from Van Gogh is from his first sermon that he ever preached. And in this sermon, he reflects on this very scene on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus walking towards us in the storm. And as Van Gogh addressed his congregation, he breaks down the room into three camps, saying that no one is immune from the storm. He says that everyone in this, everyone in this room, you've either remember a big storm from the past, you're in the midst of a big storm now, or you're foreboding an upcoming storm. And it's with this sense of unity in the human experience, he says at one point in the sermon, the heart of man is very much like the sea. It has its storms, its tides, and its depths. It has its pearls, too. The heart that seeks for God and for a godly life has more storms than any other. The heart that seeks for God and for a godly life has more storms than any other. Discouragement can lead to disbelief, especially if we think that belief in Jesus should entitle our ship to sail on constant calm waters. You know, just, just a few chapters before this passage that we're reading today, the disciples are in a boat in the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the storm. This time Jesus is sleeping. And the disciples, they wake him up and they say, Master, do you care that we are perishing? And Jesus wakes up and he looks at the storm and he says, Be silent. And the waves stop. So bearing that in mind, fast forward a little bit. Consider that in this passage, it's the same cast of characters on the same sea, yet again, going through a storm. 
I wonder if they recalled the last time they were in a storm and thought to themselves, Jesus got us out of this mess last time, and now he's nowhere to be found. He could calm the storm as he, if he wanted to. So why is he allowing this storm to happen now? Why do we ever have storms? I thought when he rebuked the waves once, it should be done once and for all. Why another storm? And I don't know what your storm looks like, but I'm sure you've had these questions. Calling out to God, where are you? Why me? Why does it have to be so hard? Are you reliable? When that first storm, the one where we find Jesus sleeping, he wakes up, he calms the storm, and he says to his disciples, Oh, you of little faith. And so here in our passage, when Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee in a storm again, Peter walks, Peter sings, Jesus saves him, and he looks at Peter and he says, Oh, you of little faith. It's almost like he's saying to Peter, Remember? I'm faithful. I'm the Lord of the storm. Jesus doesn't just tell us he's reliable. He shows us he is reliable. In every relationship, we take notice of the reliability of the other party. And with Jesus, it's no different. But notice this. God doesn't show up in the storm when we want him to. And he doesn't appear as we expect him to. This text says that Jesus doesn't show up until the fourth watch of the night. Roman military timekeeping. Night is divided into four watches from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So what this means is that the disciples had been fighting this storm for nine hours. And Jesus shows up sometime between 3 and 6 in the morning. That's a long time to be out at sea in a storm. Why didn't Jesus show up sooner? And when Jesus does show up, the text says that they were scared, not of the storm, but of Jesus. Are you a ghost? Throughout the Bible, whenever that which is holy encounters that which is not, meaning humans, and by humans I mean believing animals, people are terrified. Think about Moses and the burning bush, where every time an angel speaks to a person, they say, do not be afraid. <laughs> Why? Because they're afraid. God might scare you. He might not deliver you in the way you want, in the time you want. In the fourth watch of your storm, you might look out and see Jesus from a distance. But before the wind is calm and before the waves stop crashing, you might ask yourself, is that a ghost or God? And how you answer that matters. We, like Van Gogh, want there to be peace even in the storm. But the peace doesn't come with the storm being over. It comes from knowing that Jesus is in the storm with you. Storms aren't going to stop happening. 
God's ways are His own. So you don't, you don't take comfort in your feelings. You take comfort in Jesus Himself. The reliable faith is in the person of Jesus. God has chosen to make Himself known to us through Him, not through a concept. So, you may not know what Jesus is up to, but can you trust that He is good? Can Jesus restore our faith? Our third point. Well, we have considered the impact of Jesus' ministry on Peter. How he was present for all of Jesus' teaching throughout the years. Memorized Jesus' words. So he no doubt remembered the following words that Jesus spoke. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter was told by Jesus that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. Why was Peter so adamant that he would not deny Jesus. He remembered the words that Jesus spoke about denial. To deny Jesus wasn't merely selling out a friend, some uncool move. Peter knew the weight of the denial. It's why he told Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Peter knew that it would be better to be dead than to deny Jesus. And yet, on the night that Jesus died, he denied him three times. And when that rooster crowed, how soon after that do you think Peter sat with the weight of his action? His final action before Jesus died, and now he has to sit for days asking himself, does Jesus deny me? Am I cast out? Does Jesus still love me? Can I still be his friend? I wonder if any of us here can relate to that. Well, days later, we have a familiar scene. Same cast of characters, same sea, and once again, Jesus calms a storm. But this time, it's not a physical one. It's the spiritual storm in Peter's life, who has for days carried the guilt that he might be cast out by the Lord, wondering if he can be forgiven. A Peter, from across the sea, he sees someone, and this time, there's no confusion. It's not a ghost. It's God. Peter exclaims, it is the Lord. For the first time, he sees Jesus clearly, and he knows he has nothing to fear. He knows now that the character of Jesus is not to harm, but to heal. And this time, he jumps out of the boat and runs on water to Jesus. This is who Jesus is, that after the worst night of your life, he stands at the shore saying, come. Oh, to be a sheep with that kind of shepherd. There is no one 
with this kind of faithfulness. Everything you could possibly wish was true about God is met in Jesus. He is far more trustworthy than you know. Peter knows the full reliability of Christ because he's taken in the cross. The cross shows us the reliability of Christ that nothing else could. You can be impressed with the teachings of Jesus, but that won't get you there. You can witness the mighty works of God, but that still doesn't save you. But when you know that Christ went all the way to the cross, died for you, and forgives you, forgives your worst night, then you know that this is someone you can trust. He's the only one you can trust. Nothing else is that reliable. The cross can cover Peter, and it can cover you. And when you know that this is the character of Christ, like Peter, you will leap before you look, and you don't walk on water. You run on water while you are sinking, because you're no longer looking at the wind, you're looking at the Lord. You reach the shore, not concerned that you're soaking wet because you've reached Jesus. There is no one like him. Jesus restores our belief by being our belief. And if you haven't experienced this from Jesus yet, you can start by trusting him today to the degree that you can. Jesus is establishing a relationship with you. You may only have a little faith now, but do not be discouraged Jesus is not ashamed of your lack of faith. Just look at how patient he is with Peter, willing to show himself again and again. It's a relationship, and he will keep proving himself faithful, and you will continue to have a foundation you can trust. And as you build that trust, you can pray along with Peter, with Drew, and with me. I believe, help my unbelief. Amen.